is not easy, and we spend our life in adapting to change. Okay, when we got married, when we got a child, change is not necessarily a bad thing. Actually, at times it's a beautiful thing. When our daughter enters into our life, of course our life was changed, but for the better and forever. But again, I remain who I was. When you are in the middle of, the, of a crisis, uh, the outcome or the response uh, is not a change. It's understanding that you are transforming yourself. And the process of transformation is called transition. Hi there, and welcome to the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader you can possibly be. It's my gift to you, and it's completely free. In today's episode, we sit down with Paolo Gallo, a recognized global expert in personal and professional development. He has served as the Chief Human Resources Officer at the World Economic Forum, the Chief Learning Officer at the World Bank, Director of HR at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, along with experience in Citigroup. In this episode, he shares what he has learned about leadership from these huge organisations along with his experience of coaching CEOs of major international corporations. More specifically, though, in this episode, you will learn why Paolo believes a crisis is just like Easter, Paolo's top success tip when stepping into a new leadership role, how to transform yourself into a great leader and the very best version of yourself, and the three most common leadership success factors that I've spotted having now recorded over 148 episodes of this podcast, plus lots, lots more. So folks, that is enough of an introduction and let's dive right in. Please enjoy my conversation with Paolo Gallo. Paolo. Can you tell us about your very first leadership experience? And it could be good or bad, and how that has then influenced you as a leader and your own approach to leadership. Well, thanks, Ben. I, I don't know if it's going to be a, a good or a bad one, but it's worth mentioning. When I, when I started university a few, few weeks into my first year, I recall there was the election for the student representative and uh, there were only three political parties. So one was on the extreme right, and I can't stand these guys. One was on the extreme left, and I can't stand this guy either. And then was the super orthodox Catholics uh, that they had a program they wanted to put a crucifix um, in the classroom, which I found was uh, a bit strange, uh, knowing that it was a church just in front of university. So I felt uncomfortable with both choices. And so I decided to set up my own um, political party, inspired by uh, social democracies of, uh, in, in Scandinavia. Wow. Because I think it's a, it's a social model that, that works. Out of the blue, I, I started campaigning, and, and then you know, I got elected with 5,000 votes three weeks later. It was just a moment of, you know, perhaps leadership is, is not accepting the status quo, trying to do something about it rather than just complaining. No? Did I, that became uh, the best uh, student representative at Bocconi University? I have no idea. But I thought I've learned that uh, at times we believe that uh, 
there is a closed door in front of us and in reality we don't we just have to push the door and it opens so i encourage people starting from my own daughter when you see something that for you represents injustice or unfairness don't complain just try to change it and probably would work how old were you at the at the time of that story, Paolo, when you joined university? Was it 18, something like that? Yeah, 20. I was 20, yeah. And had you always had an interest in politics up to that point? Because that seems to me fairly unique for someone that age so early on in their time at university to stand and create their own sort of party. Normally, that might be something that people would do in their third or fourth year at university. So... I'm just curious what it was within you that led you to think, do you know what, I might be new here, but I want to make some change and I'm going to be the, the one to create that, that change. Like, Where did that drive come from? I'm a bit of a rebel. What I mean by this is when I smell injustice, I, I, I found difficult to digest. And so to me, the interest in politics is always related to, to this dimension. I fell in love with American politics because I was fascinated by the process since I was like 14 years old or whatever. And then uh, I always tried to understand how you can influence society. And uh, in politics, regrettably, became a dirty word, given uh, the, the same embarrassing display of uh, politicians that we've seen uh, in so many countries. But in reality, politics uh, is, uh, is a Latin word that, that, uh, that goes from a res publica, means uh, things that are related to everybody. And therefore, I believe that leadership should be better exercised when you use politics in a different way to help communities and countries in a way that makes sense. So I, I have not changed my mind that there was a moment in my life which I thought I was I would have become a politician and realized that uh, it's not really, you know, in English would say my cup of tea, mm-hmm. but my interest uh, remained uh, very strong. And uh, I have to say recently, I had some moment of uh, discouragement uh, given uh, that some politician that in my view should not be there currently running countries and um, and quite frankly I'm, I'm a bit doubtful that, that they should be there but I don't want to enter into politics but I think uh, everybody can relate to what I'm saying. Yeah that, that's fascinating Paolo and the other interesting thing that I want to pick up that you mentioned early on is around challenging the status quo I heard you say and also about how you're, you're a bit of a rebel. In terms of effective leadership how important do you think it is for a leader to to be challenging that status quo as a leader i'm not claiming that i'm one of them but i think that there is a bit of a paradox embedded in the role of a leader because on one side you need to provide a sense of continuity and certainty to people you, you cannot rock the boat uh, or make them feel that whatever they're doing is meaningless and everything will be changed and destroyed you know there, there must be some element of a control of anxiety that you, that you need to do. So there is a psychological dimension there. But it's also, I mean, I think a, a leader, it, to me, there are two words that comes to my mind. Is One is a, a responsibility or accountability. And the second one is, are you fighting for things that are meaningful to you or for what, what you believe? No? For example, I've been you know, director of human resources in three organizations, and I always try to introduce policies or rules uh, that to me m- made sense. And uh, I'll give you an example where, you know, the World Bank, uh, we fought hard to introduce uh, what the policy was called uh, AWS, Alternative Work Schedule, which we said, okay, if you commit to work uh, focused uh, on your job uh, for nine hours per day, every other week, uh, you don't have to come at the office on a Friday. And people thought that uh, my, this proposal was absolutely ridiculous, outrageous, uh, crazy. 
But when the World Bank introduced this policy, absenteeism was reduced by three quarter. The productivity increased, and the revenues and the volumes of the World Bank increased by 30%. So because I know that when your mind is free and you can focus on your work, you do a great job. But if you have to devote quality time to go to the dentist, to your kids, to, to I don't know, whatever, whatever class, you, your mind cannot be focused. So to me, it was just common sense. And I, we fought very hard to make it happen. It wasn't a an easy fight, but eventually we succeed. And I think uh, it was a great policy to be introduced for 20,000 people. Yeah, I find that fascinating, Paolo. Over the last few years, I've done quite a lot of formal and informal study around neuroscience. And the reason I did that was I, I got to the point where I'd see so many posts on places like LinkedIn, where it would often start with neuroscience says, and I would post a few social media posts like that as well. And I suddenly started to question, well, is that really what the neuroscience research is saying? Or is there a lot of sort of half-truths and massive oversimplifications of things? So I really started studying it. One of probably the most useful things I I learned doing that was about something that um, a brain region that neuroscientists call the default mode network. So it's the part of the brain that gets activated almost when we're not doing anything. So maybe when we are driving our regular commute, maybe standing in the shower, swimming lamps in the swimming pool, almost when our brain goes into idle mode, this default mode gets activated. And it's the part of the brain that we use for unconscious problem solving. It's where a lot of creativity comes from. It's where we make sense of our own emotions and how we relate to other people. So we can call that team dynamics, right? Now, The fascinating thing is that default mode network is suppressed or literally turned off when we are using the what we call the central executive network, which is the mode most of us use for nearly every task at work when we're planning, doing some analysis, decision making. So that neuroscience is actually the the science behind things like the four day working week, because in your example there, that time you gave off people where they got the three and a half day weekend every other week actually, that's allowing the default mode network to to get activated. So they'll come back to work the following Monday, not only better rested and more focused, but their brain will subconsciously have been processing all sorts of work-based challenges. They come back in and suddenly they've got got the answers. It's such a powerful piece of of applied neuroscience, I think. No, Ben, I'm glad you you bring this up because I'm, first of all, like you, I'm absolutely fascinated and also as a coach, I usually ask uh, my, my clients, what do you do when you don't know what you're doing? Hmm. And fundamentally, it's how you fill the space that is not filled. And that gives you a sense of where your brain and where your interests uh, navigate and give you also a sense of what you're particularly good at. So I, I'm, I'm totally on your side on this fine. And the second one in my book, when I describe the crisis game, the crisis game then uh, is a pre-work uh, that allows you to work on the reinvention game. And the invention game is not defining a business model. It's a lot to do about uh, searching inside yourself and reading the sources of energy, what you actually like. So to me, I, I keep on saying it's not only a brain issue, it's all a heart and a guts issue. Yeah. And uh, being able to read uh, these three elements of decision-making, uh, a guts issue means your instinct, heart mission means uh, your passions, what you're particularly good at, and of course, uh, the cognitive part, uh, to a certain extent, probably the easier that we know because it's the one that we use it on a daily basis. And seeing as you mentioned it there, 
Paolo. Can you tell us a little bit about your new book and the the premise behind it? Because I found it really interesting when we spoke last week planning this call. So yeah, give us the, the, the premise of the book, why you wrote it and who you intend for it to serve. I think uh, uh, like you, Ben, we're very lucky because we've been blessed to have a wonderful daughter in our life now. Yeah. And she's, she's my hero. I love her deeply, of course. Uh, every dad is totally in love with their daughters, as we know. And uh, every, every week I always ask her, you know, what, what did you learn at school? And a couple of years ago, literally over Christmas, uh, she asked her, Daddy, but, you know, what did you learn in, in, in 30 plus years of work? So I, I ask her a couple of weeks' time to, to think about and then one day I say, okay, let, let's let's go for dinner. We had a sushi dinner. And she asked me a lot of questions. It was one of the most interesting, meaningful, beautiful conversation of my entire life. Sushi wasn't great, but the conversation was. And so a couple of weeks later, I found a, a yellow sticker like this one on my computer. Mm. And she said, uh, uh, Sadika, this is your name. She said, Daddy, I loved your story. Why don't you write a book about it? Wow. And so that's why I wrote this book. But fundamentally, what I told her, I said, yeah, it's true that I've been out of HR, I, I, I do coaching, I give presentation, I met thousand people, probably it's a bit of an understatement, really, really, so many people in so many different countries. But I didn't feel that I had thousands of conversations. I felt that I had the same conversation thousands of times. But what I mean by this is not about boredom, it's about uh, the certain topics, certain challenges constantly emerge from people's conversations. And it doesn't matter any other variable, you, whatever age, sector, position, uh, political or sexual preference, people, they, they, they struggle with very similar issues. And this is also a very positive feeling that uh, regardless of any other dimension, there are so many things that make us human uh, that make us unite more than that the reason why they make us divided. Okay, So I thought that people were struggling with certain issues and, and that came up this idea of this book to say, one issue that people struggle with, uh, and I call it the inner game, is to have clarity about your direction in life, you know, clarity about what you want to do in life, which is much more than uh, thinking if you want to be a writer, a lawyer, or an IT specialist, or, a, or I don't know, a, or an athlete or musician. It's, it's, it's related to finding a purpose that makes sense to you. Okay. Second game is uh, how you improve in doing what you're doing. This is the better game, which is the, 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 the determination, the degree not to be an amateur in what you're doing, but to to have uh, some credibility because you're bloody good in doing what you're doing, okay? And this is a very, there are two egocentric games uh, because you're focusing on yourself. Then the first really big step of growing, in my view, occurs when, uh, and I call it the outer and the caring game. Uh, outer means the capacity to open the window and see uh, what is outside you. And what I mean outside you means outside your sector, your company, your job and understanding which mega trends do have an impact uh, in your activity. And the caring game is a sense of responsibility that Ben we discussed a few minutes ago that comes when you start uh, being responsible for team, communities, countries, or, or, or whatever complex organization you may think of. Then you, you probably, um, I wouldn't say safe, but you navigate in this game for quite some time. And then sometimes in the mid-40s, because also your brain starts functioning differently, you enter in what is called the crisis game. And crisis is a Greek word that implies the necessity of a decision. And if you navigate intelligently the crisis game, you're able to reinvent yourself and to find meaning and purpose and energy in the second part of your career. And then the last two games are called the legacy game or the revolution game because revolution implies a legacy that you leave to others. And the let go game is the last one, which is passing the torch because you have grown people, organizations, 
or individual uh, very strongly because your job as a leader is not to create dependency, but to develop capacity. And by developing capacity, you have people that are probably better than you. They should be the ultimate sign that you've done a great job. Paolo, something in me right now is suggesting that I take the conversation a slightly different way to perhaps where I thought I would and really delve into one of the points you just made there from your book, which is the crisis game, probably because it resonates with where I am in my stage of of life right now. So 43, rapidly heading to, to 44. A teenage daughter who, like you, is my hero, love her dearly. Aging, well, an aging parent recently lost my father about 18 months ago, which I've spoken about on the podcast before, actually. Mum in the final sort of stage of uh, dementia and kind of doing a lot to support her and her husband at the minute. And then, um, in fact, it's just coming up to a year, actually. I think when as we're recording that this next week, it will be a year since... I lost my very best friend to suicide. So that crisis point that you talk about for us as individuals really resonates. But so very strongly does the point around almost it being an opportunity to to reinvent yourself. And I think with that, for me, has come actually doing a lot of inner work prompted by a crisis. And whilst actually, if I'm being really honest on on the podcast now, the last 12 to 18 months has been incredibly tough. But just now I'm starting to feel really, really positive about the future because I almost feel a bit like, I think you used this analogy before, the the caterpillar that's metamorphosizing into a butterfly. So I wonder from your personal experience and from your work as a coach as well, like what advice or tips would you perhaps share with people that they can use if they're in this crisis point in their life where a, a lot is changing and they sense it might be an opportunity for some real growth. Well, first of all, Ben, thank you for sharing not just the concept, but also the content uh, of your crisis, which is, um, to me, vulnerability is a huge element of leadership. No? So I, I, I think you just display one of them with me right now and with the people that listen. You know? So let's move to this way. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an optimistic guy, and there are three good news, okay? <laughs> let's see what they are. The first one, when the crisis hit, uh, you're not crazy. It happens to everybody, okay? I jokingly said, uh, the crisis is like Easter. Perhaps you don't know the date, but you know that it's coming, okay? I love that, by the way. <laughs> That's a great analogy or metaphor. It really, really works. I'm a simple guy. I understand things through stories. And that's, that's what I try to do with, with people as well. No? And, and usually it could, could happen from two directions. The, the one direction is what I call there are the earthquake and the life quakes. The life quakes uh, are a divorce, um, a dear friend die, a family member also die, losing a job. They're, they're very traumatic uh, experiences. Uh, to the point that you you kind of tend to frame your life uh, before this event and, and after that event. Okay, in my life, and I discussed this in my book, uh, was the death of my father. He, he died when he was fifty three, and I was fourteen, and that was something that completely changed my life. Okay, so there are life quakes, but there are also a, a moment of of self awareness of of understanding where you know if I can use a soccer analogy, you've played the first half, you're sweating. You're full of bruises. I mean, you work very hard uh, to get where you eventually got. Uh, but then you start wondering if you want to spend the remaining 20 years of your professional life uh, in the same modality with the same rhythm, 
and with the same dynamics that you've used uh, in the former 20. And all of a sudden, some motivational factors that really worked at the beginning of your career becomes totally relevant. And uh, I can make you laugh. The first 10 years of my life, I was waiting for my salary increase uh, and the bonus as a moment of a divine intervention in which uh, it was a validation of how good I was. And then the last 10 years, I just couldn't care less. I mean, I, I just, I didn't even care about, about this because I said, Paul, you're not working 70 hours per week because maybe next year is going to get a 3% increase. Who cares? And I don't want to give the impression that I'm rich because I'm not, but simply that motivation, it was totally melting away. It was not really there. So the first good news uh, is this moment occurs to everybody. And the second good news, uh, if you understand that that moment has come and you give yourself a certain period of time, uh, you can manage the process of transformation in an effective way. I don't have a statistic in my mind or, or study, but based on my 20 years experience as a coach, it's something that takes uh, between one to two years. So it's not something you can accelerate and have it solved within a week, but it's not something that you, you give yourself 10 years time to, to solve it. So probably 18 to 24 months is about right. And in that moment, uh, you go through the process. What I did notice, and I explained this is um, probably what uh, was the most difficult chapter to write in this in this book, uh, is what's happening in people's mind uh, when you enter into a crisis. And I noticed there are four kinds of responses. And I encourage people to say, please uh, evaluate which one is the most meaningful to you. Okay, One response uh, is, um, I call it the German soldier, and I don't mean in a derogatory way against the German, but means if you don't like something, you do more of the same. Okay, So you don't like your job, you feel like uh, you know not motivated, and all of a sudden you go from 50 hours per week to 60 or 65 per week. No? And the outcome of that strategy is burnout, I guarantee to you, burnout is waiting for you just across the street. Just to jump in on that one for a second, I'm really curious about that. I'll, I'll let you carry on very soon. Do you think the driver behind doing more of what it is that you don't like is that in people's mind, they're going, if I just work a little bit harder, I'll get more money, I can retire sooner, and then I can stop and enjoy life. Is that the mentality, do you think? Almost let's just get through this, earn the money, and then things will be great once I've got the car, once I've got the house paid for. Is that what's going on for people, do you think? No, I think it's, it's, it's a rational thinking to say, you know, also because when you're in the mid-40s, as you are, I mean, I'm older than you are, I'm 60 years old, uh, Ben, but it's fair to say that probably you have a young kids, uh, elderly parents, mortgage, mm. a standard living that you want to maintain, not because you want to drink champagne every night, but because you care about uh, giving quality of life to the people you love. And this is a very very understandable and, and recognizable behavior. No? But the point is, you, you cannot think uh, that you can continue that game for the rest of your life. So I never suggest people to say, go to the office and resign tomorrow morning and become a scuba driver in the instructors in the Maldives. Huh? Yeah. Is to say, okay, acknowledge that this is emerging, this crisis is emerging, and, and try to carve out for some quality time for you to work along this line to find a meaningful solution. So it doesn't mean abandoning what you're doing, meaning start to understand that what you do is not continuing forever. So one um, response that I notice is uh, doing more the same. The second one is people pretending, no, it's not a crisis, just I'm tired, uh, I just you know need a vacation. The reality is, is postponing the solution of this problem. Then another pseudo solution is people that are you know probably my age or maybe a little bit younger that all of a sudden they think that they can become a 30 years old again, they dump the wife, uh, they, they start having a young lover, they buy a sports car, 
the Grand Vacation to Mykonos and, and all of a sudden they feel that, oh, you know, actually I'm not 55, I'm 28. And usually this happiness lasts uh, six to nine days. And uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say six to nine months. No, 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 I, I, I doubt because uh, <laughs> uh, joking beside is a regression that doesn't bring uh, any solution living beside uh, financial, legal and psychological complication. I don't want to sound uh, too funny, but usually it's not a fun uh, trajectory. The only one that makes sense is to say, okay, I'm now 45, 58, okay? I do have wonderful kids, a lovely wife or husband, but I'm not going to you know, do what I'm doing right now for the next 20 years. And I'm going to tell you one thing, Ben, you're going to um, um, love this little exercise. I've been coaching 200 people in my life, no? And believe it or not, I have a collection of, of a picture of each of them. I know it sounds a bit spooky, but let me explain what I mean by this. Because what, what I usually do in the different sessions, there is a session which I said, let me let me say this to you. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this with you right now. I know it's, I'm, I'm not gonna take a picture, but I'm gonna explain the exercise. We say, listen, actually, I have a coaching session today at five o'clock, and usually. Near the end of the session, I said, uh, listen, I'm going to ask you a question. The moment in which I'm asking you a question, I'm going to take a picture with my iPhone, and I'm going to take a picture a fraction of a second after I'm asking you this question. So in that fraction of a second, the feeling of that question will come up, but you've not yet been able to elaborate an answer. Okay? I'm not going to put it on any social media. I keep it for myself. I'm not going to share it with anybody. I'm not going to ridicule you, but... Would you accept? And 99% of the people say, fair enough. And the question is very simple. I'm going to say, Ben, whatever you're doing right now, you're going to do this for the rest of your life. <laughs> and then I take a picture. And people that look like between uh, surprised, disgusted, tired, uh, frustrated, upset, not good stuff. Why I'm telling you this? Not because they hate what they're doing, but the idea that you continue doing what you're doing right now for the rest of your life is never appealing to anybody. So what does it mean? That eventually the crisis is coming. Eventually the moment where you don't want to spend, you know, as I did in my own life, uh, 160, 180 days per year on an airplane going somewhere in the planet. Now, it looks cool to say, which is true, that I work in 83 countries, but believe me, it would not look to me cool to me now, thinking that I still have 60 to go, meaning it's not a life that I want to do. So crisis, what does it mean? Is coming to everybody. There is a process for you to understand what does it mean to you and how you can reinvent yourself. I'm encouraging people not to deny that this crisis is there, not to regress, not to continue doing what you're doing with more emphasis because this is usually a recipe for burnout. It's simply acknowledging that there is a, a challenge that you have to face. Give yourself a reasonable time frame. Carve out quality time to work on you. And that's the reason why I wrote this book. And then eventually, if you are helped by a good coach, or at least you have some good mentors that can help you out, within one to two years, you should have clarity of what you're going to play in the second half of your game. I love that, Paolo. And again, I want to dive in and ask you a few specific questions here so we can make this really practical for, for people listening. Actually, first of all, before I say that, it's really interesting that we that you chose to use this word crisis and elaborate on it in your book. Because if I think back to my childhood, so I was born kind of 79, so the bulk of my childhood I remember was the 80s, the early 90s. One of the things that I remember my parents talking about a lot then was if the video was on for everybody watching this, I'd do the sort of air commas on it, but it was the midlife crisis. There was almost a 
joking phrase back then that oh he's having a midlife crisis and it was often because of things you've you've spoken about where they've gone and bought the sports car or whatever they've they've started doing so it was a joke many of those jokes I think as you've proved from your coaching and as you've written about in the book they're jokes because they're actually truisms right and it I think probably is around that period for many people of 40s to 50s because of the reasons we shared right if you've blessed to have children they're getting to an age where they maybe need you more many of us will find ourselves in a in a senior job perhaps with aging parents that we're also looking after so you do almost get squeezed from both sides is how I, I picture it so it is very true this joke about the, the midlife crisis I, I, I think I'm 100% with you that part of the solution comes from sort of doing some of that inner work as you as you describe it but I'm curious, like, what does that actually look like? What are some of the practical things when we talk about doing the inner work or working on yourself? What might people be doing? And the reason I say that is as passionate as I am about leadership and personal development, there was a big four day leadership conference I went to in Canada every December for four or five years in in a row. And one of the big things they spoke about was doing the inner work. And I would nod and agree, and I would do some things as a result of that conference, but I never quite got to the stuff that would have been truly transformational, which I probably have got to to now. So what does that look like? What are some of the things people could do to really get to know themselves, to improve and do the what you call the inner work? Without sounding academic, people need to understand there is a fundamental difference between managing change and managing transformation. These are completely different things, okay? Managing change uh, implies uh, the need of adaptation, okay? For example, I lived in Italy, in the United States, uh, in UK, in Switzerland. I lived briefly in Kenya, in Brazil, in Thailand. Um, we moved houses. When you something, or you change your job, you change your company, you change your role, you change your organizational setting, and uh, change management is, is not easy. And there is a discipline uh, that even in university that, that helps you to understand change. But fundamentally, change requires mental flexibility and adaptation. Okay? And again, I'm not saying that it's easy, but it's something that is, is under our skin. We, we kind of internalize it. When uh, this moment of crisis comes, people confuse this crisis with, uh, I need a change. What I mean by this is, uh, let's say you work for... JP Morgan, you have this crisis and you resign and you do the same job at Citibank. And after six months, you say, gee, that, that's not, I'm, I'm exactly where I was before. Yeah. Maybe with an extra bit of money, but yeah, fundamentally, you have not managed at all a transition. You, you just manage a change. So the first point to say, change is not easy. And we spend our life in adapting to change. Okay, when we got married, when we got a child, change is not necessarily a bad thing. Actually, at times it's a beautiful thing. When our daughter entered into our life, of course our life was changed, but for the better and forever. So I'm so glad that the change occurred. But again, I remain who I was. When you are in the middle of of a crisis, uh, the outcome or the response uh, is not a change. It's understanding that you are transforming yourself. And the process of transformation is called transition. Transition, transire in Latin means to go to another place, okay? So what does it mean, transition? Transition means that you have become different, that what motivated you maybe in your 20s or 30s are no longer motivating you in your 40s or your 50s. Something that you find meaningful or important or relevant is, is actually no longer there. 
you also need to let go a few things. And uh, and I'll give you maybe a, a practical example. I, I, I set up a, a group uh, with the head of HR of international organizations. No? And I set up that group, uh, I can tell you, in 2003 in London, when I was head of human resources for the European Bank. And for a good 16 years, I was chairing that group because I found it, I created it. Then I left the World Economy Forum and they, they have a meeting and I wasn't even invited. 10% of me, I was really upset to say, shit, they didn't invite me. I mean, these guys, I mean, I created the damn thing. Yeah. But then I realized, hold on a second, Paolo, you have decided to do something different in life, okay? And, uh, and therefore, let go certain elements that belong to your former self uh, should come as normal. It's like, you know, you want to get married, but you still want to date girls. It doesn't work that way. Okay? <laughs> uh, it really doesn't work. You, you cannot pick up what you like about your former life uh, and bring it to the new one. So uh, this is, to me, is in, incredibly important, which is understanding the difference between managing a change and uh, dealing and managing a transformation of yourself. The first one, you have to adapt. The second one, you have to transform. When you understand the transformation, you also understand what you have to let go, what is not part of your of your personal or professional life anymore. There is a moment of, of sadness because when, when you let go certain things, there is a moment of sadness, but it's like moving houses. The day where you move, you're probably sad, but as you build a new house, a new place, huh, the energy of building something that is closer to you overcome by far the sadness of what you left behind. So this links me nicely back to something else I thought we, we might discuss, Paolo. And you talk about here, or you was just talking, sorry, about letting go of things as part of a, of a transition. Now, when I think about leadership, I often think of it almost as um, like a piece of rope that's made up of different strands of thinner rope, I guess, that are, that are coiled together, right? So and what I mean by that is we can't separate us as an individual from us as a leader. The two are so intrinsically wound t- together, I think, in so many different different dimensions. So this point around transitions and letting go, I think, is as true and valuable for us as a human, for you, Paolo, as a person, as it is for you, Paolo, as a, as a leader. And in, in my experience, I think that letting go of certain tasks responsibilities even ways of working when we step into a more senior leadership role can be a real challenge for for some people i think it's one of the things that will often hold people back and prevent them from being as successful as they possibly could when they step up into into a leadership role i just wonder what's your experience of that from kind of being employed and now working as a as a coach and what tips would you maybe suggest to leaders to help them successfully make that transition when they step up and working out what things to, to let go of? Perhaps there are two distinct moments that I think is worth um, reflecting upon. The first one, again, I've been head of human resources and I've been uh, in panel promoting people to managers and then director or vice president for you know 20 years. And uh, what is a common mistake that I've noticed? And uh, what is a rookie mistake uh, the newly appointed manager do? And usually try to prove they are better than everybody in their team. And uh, when in reality, the job is actually to make sure that the people in the team are better than them. <laughs> so they're they completely missed. You know? And what I mean by this is, uh, you know, they put like uh, 80 hours per week. Uh, they're working very hard. They want to prove everybody's wrong. Uh, they want to prove they're very good at the first one to come, the last one to leave. Uh, 
And this is commendable for, from a certain standpoint. But in, in reality, your role as a leader is to make sure that the people that are working with you are growing, and because they're growing, they produce um, you know, meaningful results for, for, for the organization. And I realized this when I, you know, first time I was appointed as an HR director, my team wasn't huge, it was 40 people, but all of a sudden I realized that even if I would have left at midnight and starting at six o'clock in the morning every day, the additional effort that I would have put would have been still a fraction of the additional value that I would have been able to bring if only I would have been able to motivate the people working with me, not for me, with me. So that's to me is the rookie mistake. When you fast forward and you're now probably in your early 60s or, or whatever you're about to leave, uh, the mistake is different because people by then usually they've learned that it's not anymore about proving that you're better. But letting go means uh, literally passing the torch to somebody else. And what I mean passing the torch, does it mean abdication? Does it mean, uh, you know, you, you're becoming relevant? It means that you've proved your worth because you grew up people that are better than, than you are. Ben, the two of us with, with our daughters, I, I'm so full of joy when I see that my daughter is faster than me in skiing, is better than me in playing tennis. And, and the same should be with, with the people working with you. You want to have people that eventually overcome you. And, and I know it sounds a bit arrogant, but I hope it doesn't come across that way. Right now, there are 13 people that used to report to me the head of human resources. And I think of all of them in some shape or form are better than me. And that's something that gives me joy. So the last moment of our leadership to me is a sign of wisdom, of maturity, of gravitas, in which uh, you let go because you understand that what you produced, what you created is great. There is a wonderful phrase from a book that I absolutely adore called uh, Memoir d'Adrien by Marguerite Yursenar, uh, in which uh, Adrien is a, a Roman emperor. And at the end of the book, uh, this Roman emperor said, I realized that I was a big, I, I'd been a great emperor because I was no longer needed. And this is to me is a beautiful phrase. Uh, while, because uh, the, the purpose of leadership is to, is to develop capacity, not to create dependency. If you develop capacity, you grow adults. If you create dependency, you are similar to a drug dealers in which people have to rely on you and without you, they cannot operate. And this is not leadership. This is a toxic manipulation of individuals. Yeah, I 100% agree. I, I really do believe that is one of the fundamental principles or, or goal of a leader, which is to grow more leaders and essentially to, to make yourself self-redundant, right? I remember it's about 18 months ago, maybe two years, I was delivering a keynote presentation. We had a Q&A session at the end and somebody asked me, Ben, what has been your most significant leadership challenge? And I really paused to, to answer something in that moment caused me to. And I thought it would have been so easy to list off some experiences from, from my time in, in the military. And indeed, there's one particular one from the military, which is a real highlight, which speaks to your point exactly in that it was my second deployment to Iraq. And on a six month deployment in the British Army, at some stage, you'll get 10 days leave to come back to, to the UK. Now, I'd taken mine right towards the very end of the six-month deployment, in which time I got married and me and my wife moved into an army house because the wedding was planned before I knew I was going, going back to Iraq. But I'd spent a lot of time, what I'd now call coaching and developing my immediate team. And I was running all of the operations throughout a squadron of about 180 soldiers. I'd spent a lot of time training, coaching, mentoring my team. And it just so happened the 10 days that I was back home in the UK was 
the most volatile, intense period in that entire deployment. And I came back and it was as if I hadn't been away. They just managed it all perfectly without me. Now, the ego-driven leader could really worry about that. But for me, I was like, that is absolute success for me. So I, I get your point. But interestingly, it's kind of become a bit of a theme of this conversation. The answer I actually gave to that question when I was standing on the stage was, honestly, the biggest leadership challenge has been being a dad because there's nowhere to hide, right? It's 24-7. Your kids are watching, listening, being influenced by every single thing that you do good good or bad and you can't just suddenly like stop and go on going home now I don't need to be the leader because it's never ending like it is the most significant leadership challenge but it's an absolute blessing and one I wouldn't change for the world no listen Ben uh, you're you're preaching a converted here I 100% agree with you in fact even my own LinkedIn profile I think I wrote a I'm a dad and a husband because this is the, the, the two jobs that I take down seriously. I, I'm not going to going to resign in any of them. I can be fired for the second one, but I can be fired. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, a, I hope it doesn't sound like commercial, but that's the reason why I wrote this book now, because uh, there are thousands of, of books about leadership up there, articles, movies, TED Talks, uh, you name it. That's so, so much. It's a very, very polluted and very congested area. Okay. When I proposed my book to the publisher, I said, do we really need another book about leadership? And the answer is, no, we don't. But this is not about leadership, even if the title could be misleading. It is about growing as an individual, because what I noticed uh, that leadership books tend to be in three categories. One category is a book that tells you what uh, a leader should be doing. Then another category, books about leadership, I said, what the leader should be. And they focus more not on activities, but on, on behavioral traits. And they're beautiful. Some of them are very inspirational, but they're very aspirational and at times also difficult to reconcile. I know once, for example, write a, a book to say you need to have a 20 years uh, horizon and you need to you know, have a profitable company on a monthly basis. So which is like, you know, it's, it's not so easy you know, like, uh, to, to, to be able to, to do both. Uh, and then the third category is more the heroic uh, heroism book in which they pick up uh, somebody that could be Steve Jobs or, or, or whatever person and say, oh, this is, is a model and we should follow what this guy's been doing. Look what, how successful it's been. You should do the same. You know? And what, what I notice also, not just reading and teaching about this topic, is very little is devoted to help people to grow into a leadership position. And I'm not referring to training courses or, or endorsement or reference checking to say, what do I actually do for you to grow? And so that book uh, um, that, I wanted, that, I, that I wrote, it simply helps people to say, you know, if you want to be a leader, it starts with you. you know? So it doesn't start about managing people, budget, uh, organizational reporting, and, and whatever it is. Uh, it starts with who you are as an individual. And if you understand these uh, different steps and you master the crisis game, the invention game, and you find meaning and you understand the care in the outer is a quintessential intellectual and human quality that allows you to relate to other people and to what's happening around you, I think you have good chances to, to be a credible leader. If you don't go through that journey, I keep on saying, don't confuse leaders with people in power position. These are two different things. Okay, in my own government in Italy, you know, I don't want to enter into politics, but there are a lot of people that have very powerful position. To me, they are the opposite of what I believe a leader should be. And therefore, don't confuse uh, being a leader with being a powerful position. These are two different things. Paolo, you've really beautifully 
brought us back to a, a lovely place to end this episode of the show. And I'm also going to spring one final question on you that we, we hadn't planned at all. But based on all of your personal experience as a head of HR, HR director in the corporate world, plus all you've done as a coach and mentor since, if you were to give just one piece of practical advice to people looking to move into a very senior leadership role, what would it be and why? I try to be optimistic, but optimistic doesn't mean that things will go the way you want, but means that uh, you will find a solution no matter what if only you have the intelligence of listening to people you trust. So I'm optimistic because I always find solutions to whatever problem occurred in my life. And believe me, I could write 10 books, uh, 10 books about this. I've never lost the hope that I would have found a meaningful solution that is not necessarily maybe what I had in mind uh, three or six months earlier, but eventually will come. Take it as a, I don't know, a religious belief or, or a, a, a whatever it is, but uh, remaining optimistic is an essential element, but it's not this fake optimism that everything will go fantastic, everything will become rich, everybody will be promoted, and uh, love and peace for everybody. That sadly doesn't happen. That means they they can throw a kitchen sink to me, I will find a solution, I will find a way, uh, but I need to rely on people. And perhaps uh, what I haven't done enough at the beginning of my life to ask for help. And uh, I'm encouraging people to not to wait until you're 50 to ask for help, do it earlier, do it with people you trust, people that you, you, you love, people that care about you. And I think the journey will be a meaningful one. Yeah, I love that, Paolo. Thank you. And I also find it fascinating that you mentioned there, have the intelligence to listen to other people. I've done approaching 150 episodes of this podcast now. And over that time, different themes have, have emerged and different things have shown up more but the more episodes I do three of the big themes I'm starting to notice that so many people are sharing around being effective as a leader and enjoying the, the the ride of this thing we call human existence right comes down to carving out some space and time to think to be whatever but giving yourself space rather than filling every single day chock full of meetings or whatever interestingly breathing just breathing, whether it's a few deep breaths, some sort of breathing exercise seems to be the solution to so many challenges in life, personal or leadership. And the third is the one you mentioned there, listening. Just having the intelligence, the humility to stop and listen is, is so powerful. They're probably the three most significant things or the most common things that people share on this, on this podcast as advice. So, yeah, amazing that kind of you're echoing some of those as, as well. Paolo, thank you so much for joining me and everybody listening on the show today. Fascinating conversation. Like, I've absolutely loved it. It's definitely one that I'm going to go back and listen to again myself so I can really take it all on board because very honestly, as kind of I'm interviewing a lot of the time, you miss some of the subtleties. So I'm very excited to, to go back and listen again. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Ben. I really appreciate this opportunity. I loved it. Grazie. Thanks so much. Before you go, let me just say a very big thank you for joining Paolo and myself for this episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast, which happens to be the last episode in season nine of the show. 
If you've been listening for a while, if you've been with me on this journey for some time, you'll know that the show started as a COVID-19 lockdown project. I didn't have a clue how it was going to unfold or where it would go, but here we are wrapping up season nine and getting ready for season 10 of the show in the new year. And we've got some really exciting developments coming next year. We are bringing you better and better guests. We're providing you with more and more precise, useful show notes so you know what to expect from each episode. And one of the things me and my team are most excited about is a new mini podcast format where we're going to release a five-minute episode called The Leader's Kit Bag every Wednesday. It'll be a five-minute clip, very practical, helping you get even better at one specific aspect of leadership. It's super cool, and I can't wait to hear what you think about this new format. Before you go, before we wrap up Season 9, there's just one small request I'd like to make of you, which will take no more than a few minutes. Wherever you happen to be listening, please would you do me the favour, the honour of leaving a quick star rating of the show and subscribing to the show wherever you happen to be listening. It really would mean the world to me and it really does help us continue to grow the show and make it better and better for you. That's it for this episode. That's it for season nine of the show. If you're listening live, I wish you and your loved ones a very happy Christmas and all the best for 2024. I look forward to helping you next year be the best leader and the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. Until then, look after yourself, look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead, and as always, lead on.